are back with another edition of the Kerry Crowley Show, first of the offseason for the San Francisco Giants and first of what should be a very busy offseason. If you caught the last episode, really appreciate you dealing with the audio and video issues. Uh, got a few complaints, but not too many, uh, as I recorded that emergency podcast right after Gabe Kapler was fired on Friday in San Francisco. I ended up recording that uh, that whole episode from a hotel room in Florida. I was on the beach uh, in Destin, Florida, hanging out with my girlfriend, and all of a sudden, Gabe Kapler is fired. She's doing math homework. She's in graduate school. I'm sitting by the pool, and I just said, we got to go up. We got to take care of this and kind of chart the path forward for what this means for the franchise moving forward. If you've listened to this show at all over the past few weeks, I think we've been doing this about a month and a half now, you know that I I think that one of the most perplexing moves that the Giants made uh, on any level of the organization throughout the second half of the season was, with about two and a half weeks to go, Greg Johnson, the Giants chairman, telling Susan Slusser of the San Francisco Chronicle that Farhan Zaidi and Gabe Kapler would be back for the 2024 season. It was just shocking to hear him say that with the team in the middle of a playoff race, knowing that the schedule was daunting and knowing that Farhan and Gabe, to that point in the season, had done their jobs okay, but they weren't inspiring a whole lot of confidence for the future. And to just make that kind of a claim, to say, yes, of course they'll be back next season, that's the plan, I felt that he was speaking too soon. And I've talked about that a lot in recent episodes, talked about it on KMBR with Marty Lurie and Bill Lasky. It was just something that didn't need to be said because you let the season play out. You see how they do during the final two weeks, and then you evaluate the performance moving forward. But to make that kind of a blanket statement with two weeks to go left in the regular season and so much hanging in the balance with the Giants potentially being able to secure a wildcard berth, sneak into the postseason, and you never know what happens, or fall flat on their face, which is what they did, and finish in fourth place in the NL West behind the San Diego Padres, who essentially floundered their way through the regular season. It just never made sense from the standpoint of what you want in a decision maker making cautious decisions uh, moving forward for an organization that clearly needs to do a better job. And that was clear at the time. Look, there were a lot of Giants fans who, even if they did make the playoffs this year, were kind of upset with the way that the organization has approached the last two seasons. After the 107-win season, felt like the Giants really leaned in on their internal culture that they thought they had. And a lot of that culture is, look, we can re- rehabilitate these free agents that have flaws. We can bring them in, and our coaching staff will fix their issues. We will make them productive players again, and we will be a solid team moving forward. The Giants always felt and this is true since the beginning of the Farhan Zaidi era, that they would outperform their projections. And you look at the projections from Fangrass, from any number of computer models at the outset of the season, and you look at where the Giants ended up, and they're not all that different. Those projections told us that the Giants would not be a playoff team. The Giants told us they would be a playoff team. That came from leadership. That came from Greg Johnson. It came from Larry Bear. It came from Farhan Zaidi, and it came from Gabe Kapler. And the fact that they're not a playoff team is on all of those people and, of course, the players. But as I've talked about in recent episodes, the blame falls higher up in the organization. And I've said this. I think that Gabe Kapler was essentially a scapegoat for the organization's problems because they knew that they had to change certain things. And it's easier to just replace the manager and get a new public-facing figure in place than it is to change a wide array of organizational philosophies. Now, with that being said, Farhan Zaidi, I give him credit, he is committed publicly to making change. 
Now, we'll see what that looks like this offseason. Will the Giants attract a big free agent? Will they make a big trade? Will they shake up this roster? Will they lean in on the young core that they have emerging from the minor league level that fans desperately want to see succeed in the majors? You know, he said on Tuesday afternoon that Marco Luciano was going to be the shortstop of the future in San Francisco. He'd be given every opportunity to earn the job next year. I think that that's a positive step moving forward. Will he make the same commitment with Kyle Harrison? pitching out of the rotation next season? Will Luis Matos have the opportunity to succeed and to fail and work through those failures at the major league level? Will the Giants supplement this roster of kids? A lot of these kids are prospects just making their way to the major league level. Will they supplement this roster with the necessary talent from the outside to make good on their beliefs that they should be a perennial playoff contender? Because you look at the supplements from the outside last year, it was Mitch Haniger, it was Michael Conforto, Taylor Rogers, Ross Stripling, and Sean Manaya, And for the most part, those players let the Giants down. The Giants did not do a good enough job at evaluating talent from the outside, and that's why they find themselves in this position where they absolutely had to change some things. And I'm, I'm not here to say that firing Gabe Kapper was the wrong move. What I am here to say is that the Giants need to make a lot of changes, and if that's the only one, now that is the wrong move. And so we move forward. We will talk about a wide variety of things throughout this episode. Roger Munter of There Are Giants, he and I have done another collaborative episode together, had the opportunity to sit down him, sit down with him right before I tape this, and we'll turn things over to that interview in a moment. But one thing that I wanted to do, kind of setting the stage for that interview because we didn't get to talk about this, is talk a little bit about Brandon Crawford and his legacy in San Francisco. Because what we saw on Sunday was the Brandon Crawford that I have always known. I had the pleasure of covering him from 2017 to 2021 as a Giants beat writer. And I think that Brandon Crawford is the greatest shortstop in San Francisco era history. I think that, in my opinion, he's a top 10 player, position player, in San Francisco era history. But beyond all of that, beyond the accolades, beyond the four gold gloves, the two silver sluggers, the two World Series titles that he won in San Francisco, I think that beyond all of that, Brandon Crawford represented something more to Giants fans, and particularly the ones that grew up in and around the Bay Area and Northern California, who grew up rooting for this team the way that Brandon Crawford did. And I say that because think about the hundreds of thousands, the millions of kids out there who played Little League Baseball in the Bay Area for the last 60-plus years, ever since the Giants moved from New York from the Polo Grounds in 1958. Think about all the kids who wanted to wear the Giants uniform and wanted to be a part of the organization. And you think about the ones that got to win with the San Francisco Giants. And you think about the ones that got to win at the level that Brandon Crawford did with the San Francisco Giants in 2012 and 2014, bringing home titles to his boyhood team. This is someone who understood and really believed in the magnitude of what that meant. This is someone who every day went out and signed autographs for kids, regardless of whether he was out of the lineup, struggling with injuries, or having the best month of his major league career. He was always the same person off the field, always willing to understand that his being a giant meant something a little different than someone who didn't grow up rooting for this team, that someone who didn't grow up in the Bay Area, hoping one day he could play at Oracle Park. It was not the same for a lot of people as it was for Brandon Crawford. Think about the pressure of dealing with those expectations. Even when he came up in the Giants organization in 2011, we were told that he was just a glove first guy. He wasn't going to hit. And what did he do? First day, curveball from Sean Markham, hits a grand slam, 
Grand Slam leads the Giants to a victory over the Milwaukee Brewers. You think about 2014, the wildcard game against Volquez. He hits the home run that silences the stadium at PNC Park. You think about all the different remarkable moments. One of the highlights that I've seen going around this week is the leaping grab that he made at Dodger Stadium in the 2021 NLDS. I think he robbed Mookie Betts of a hit on a line drive. He just made the sensational look so commonplace, so routine, so ordinary. And there are so many different moments from Brandon Crawford's career that will resonate with Giants fans forever. But I think what will really resonate is the aura that his career had of being the local kid that done well, being the local kid that made good, being the local kid that truly understood what it meant to be a member of the San Francisco Giants. This is someone who grew up knowing what Willie Mays did in San Francisco, what Willie McCovey, Orlando Cepeda, and Juan Marichal all meant to Giants fans. This is someone who watched Barry Bonds as a kid, someone who watched you know, the 1993 team, he was probably a little kid at that time, but someone who watched the 2002 World Series, someone who wanted to be a part of all of this growing up and who coming out of UCLA as a fourth round draft pick, it was never a sure thing that he was going to be that guy. But ultimately, he gets the opportunity in 2011 and 12, 13 years later, we're sitting here saying what a career he had in San Francisco. One of the finest defenders of his generation and someone who when it was time, in the eighth and ninth inning, you wanted his bat at the plate because Brandon Crawford was always cool, calm, and collected under pressure, and he always delivered when it mattered most. You look at his career, so many signature moments, but again, it was the aura that he brought, the presence that he brought, and the understanding internally of what it meant to represent the San Francisco Giants, what it meant to don the orange and black, and how much of a privilege that was. He knew that there were, he knew that there were millions of kids just like him out there, who would never get that opportunity. And every day he put on the jersey, I'll tell you, he thought about those kids and he thought about the kids who he was signing autographs for. He never took it for granted to be a San Francisco Giant. And anyone who walked through that clubhouse, he made sure that they knew that it was a special opportunity to represent the organization. So the Giants will undoubtedly miss Brandon Crawford in their next era. It is sad that he is the final link to the 2012-2014 World Series titles. He's the last player with a connection the Giants' golden era, but it's on the next generation of players, the Marco Lucianos, the Kyle Harrisons, to bring home the next title to San Francisco. And right now, that title feels a long ways away. There's a lot of progress the Giants organization has to make to catch up to other teams in the National League, to catch up to the rest of Major League Baseball. And that progress starts with a new direction for the franchise, with hiring a new manager. Later on this week, I will focus on the managerial candidates. I'll probably look at candidates from inside the organization, although ultimately I believe the Giants will go outside the organization to make this hire. I'll talk about some of the traits, the characteristics they're looking for. I plan on doing another episode either Wednesday, Thursday. Haven't quite decided yet, but be on the lookout for that wherever you listen to The Kerry Crowley Show whether it's Spotify. If you do listen there, please leave us a five-star review. If you're on YouTube, please like, please comment. Do whatever you can. Really appreciate the feedback we've gotten so far. If there's something you'd like me to talk about on this show, if there's questions you'd like answered, if you want a mailbag episode, please send me an email, kocrowley at gmail.com. Uh, tweet me, ko underscore Crowley. Comment on YouTube. I will do whatever I can because this is going to be a fascinating off-season as we learn about and chart the direction for the future of the San Francisco Giants. With that being said, it's time to turn things over to my friend Roger Munter as we have a discussion about the very future of this organization. Okay, so Kerry, the last time we spoke, 
was the day after the first game in Dodger Stadium, um, Mike Yastrzemski talk, uh, forgot how many outs there were and talked a little bit about accountability that day. In the days after we recorded that conversation, um, you've got you know, Logan Webb's comments, Logan Webb's uh, conversation with with uh, Gabe Kapler, the shocking firing of Gabe Kapler, more comments from, from Mike Yastrzemski about uh, clubhouse accountability and how you build a, a winning atmosphere. Uh, so I kind of want to get into this conversation of clubhouse culture. It's a fraught conversation because it's one of those fault lines of the culture wars of baseball that crusty old writers talk about grit and heart and all this stuff and and younger generations that like to to plug into data and analyze things kind of think it's a narrative and a myth. Um, I'm a person who always stands in the middle of the road. So, you know, middle of the road, Raj kind of sees both sides, but I don't like to go too far to the other side. But I've never been in a clubhouse. You have been in clubhouses. Can you explain to me what is clubhouse culture? How does it form? Can you see a good clubhouse or a bad clubhouse? Do you know whether it's good or bad? Or is it one of those things that winning makes good and losing makes bad? How does clubhouse culture work, Kerry? Roger, I think you touched on a really important part at the end there. And does winning make clubhouse culture? I will get to that argument in a moment because I, I really do think it does. But I want to start by talking about the fact that when I covered the Giants, it was the Buster Posey era in San Francisco. And 2017, of course, they lose 98 games. That was my first season on the beat. 2018, 2019, not a whole lot better, even if the record suggested that they were a little closer to doing what they wanted to do. They were still under 500. But I think that when you have those established stars and players to look up to, players who've been there and done that, players who just have the instant credibility based on their resumes, it's a little easier to say that the clubhouse culture is good, even if people from the outside don't know it. And what I mean by people from the outside, writers, fans, look, I, I think that in the 70s and 80s, when writers were still traveling with the teams, when they were flying on the team planes, when they were staying at the team hotels, you probably had a little more insight into what the clubhouse culture was actually like. And my guess is that bled through in the newspapers and the TV reports. And I think right now we're in an era where it's harder than ever to tell what the clubhouse culture is like because writers are limited to 60 minutes inside the clubhouse. For the most part, TV broadcasters are working for the teams and they're not going to say anything negative or give any insight into behind the scenes happenings that would put the team in an unfavorable light. And so we're left to these end of season reports that now come out on an annual basis for teams that finish under 500 or for teams that underwhelm. And almost always, we saw it with the Padres. Ken Rosenthal had a tremendous story. We saw it with the Mets. Uh, I think it was Will Salmon of The Athletic and Tim Britton of The Athletic who had a great story. The Yankees. Y you look at all these teams and what do they have in common? They underwhelmed relative to expectation and they've got people willing to pin the blame on other people, which is what happens when you underwhelm. And so I think when things are going well, we just assume that the clubhouse culture is good. When things are going poorly, we assume that the clubhouse culture is bad and people are willing to pin the blame on other people. And that's just a long way of saying now more than ever, I think that a lot of clubhouse culture has to do with having people in there who have the resumes, who have the star power, who've been there and done that, which the Giants just, quite frankly, haven't had enough of over the last few seasons, save for Brandon Crawford. And I honestly don't know if it's anything other than winning, anything other than the good vibes that a 10-game win streak produces. Because go back to June, I think we were all ready to tell you that the Giants clubhouse culture was really good, right? 
Can I just say I this I was writing something this morning that brought this up with 52 games to go in this season. The Giants had the third best record in the National League. 52, 52 games to go. I mean, Mike. So you started that by talking about Buster Posey. Um, your colleague, Andy Baggerly, said something I thought was really resonated with me at the end where he said, you know, Gabe Kapler really believed if he gave his players every resource that adults in the room will be adults. And they'll take those and run with it and go out and try and win. And maybe when Buster Posey or or guys who have long contracts, that's always yeah. part of this, right? Too. So people who are going to be there when there were those voices in the room, that works. But when things start going badly, and I feel for him because that's the kind of manager I was. I'm going to give you resources and I'm going to trust you to take these and use them well. Um was it really a matter of this worked when Buster was there and with without him, the secret sauce is kind of missing? Oh, that's such a tough one because, look, I think that there are a number of other players you could have put in that clubhouse uh, from a number of other different teams, say in Nolan Arenado, where things went terrible in St. Louis this year. Right. And I don't know if they had the same type of clubhouse issues or end of season clubhouse reports that, you know, teams like the Padres, the Yankees, the Giants had that put people's jobs in jeopardy. But I think that Buster was a stabilizing presence in part because of the position that he played. And right. so when you're responsible for preparing the entire pitching staff, there's 13 people who have to be accountable to you because when Buster showed up to the park, the guy wasn't playing video games. He wasn't playing cards. He was studying. He was in the training room, getting his body ready to go. And guys saw what it took for Buster to put himself in position to play. The final years, those were really tough. Like a lot of people say, I wish Buster was still playing. I think people in the Giants clubhouse know how difficult it was for Buster to just simply get out there and get behind the plate for nine innings, let alone prepare himself to swing the bat too. His body was not in good shape by the end of it, which makes the 2021 season all the more remarkable. Amazing. And I say all of that because... When you have a catcher who can do that, it makes things so much easier. And maybe Patrick Bailey becomes that guy. Like maybe Patrick Bailey has the leadership qualities that Buster had, although I think that no one probably has the leadership qualities that Buster had. But maybe Patrick Bailey is the tone setter moving forward in the preparation process where 13 pitchers have to be accountable to him. And if he's a switch hitter, getting in his reps on both sides of the plate before the game and looking at opposing pitchers before the game, maybe other players in the clubhouse have to live up to that standard. But when you've got guys who are part-time players being your highest paid player in a Jock Peterson, guys who, hey, if a left-hander's on the mound, Jock doesn't have to prepare that day. Jock doesn't have to go through the same strenuous process of preparing himself before the game that a guy who is his platoon partner does. I think it's just different. Like you're counting on someone to be a leader, paying them the most money on the team to play 110 games a season, as opposed to, being the guy who's going to set the tone for the series is the catcher. So Logan Webb has said a little bit of this. It's hard when you're on the mound just once every five days to really, truly be the leader. Like I think the pitching staff as a whole benefits. I think Kyle Harrison will benefit tremendously from being around Logan Webb. But the position player group, that's where the Giants lacked a true someone who could truly hold everyone accountable. Like Mike Yastrzemski, Tyro Estrada, they could only do so much because of their track records at the major league level. The Giants needed someone who's a bit more established, not necessarily a star, but someone who played every day, 
someone who's been in San Francisco and is going to be in San Francisco and someone who could set the tone from that perspective. And maybe Patrick Bailey by default, by the position becomes that guy. But I think that's what they were lacking. I mean, it is hard to do that as a rookie too. So there's another mm-hmm. place where really hard. Uh, it, it is funny. You bring up the Cardinals. And of course, this was the first year that Yadier wasn't there. And this <laughs> team that has, for so many years seemed like they were overachieving based on their talent. Suddenly, suddenly face plants. Um, you know, ultimately it's a lot easier to be accountable when you're performing on the field. And, and, and that's what was lacking uh, at the end there. Uh, so we did kind of get to this, I think, shocking conclusion of the year. I don't know. Do we want to, do you want to try and sum up uh, uh, Gabe Kapler's time yeah. with let's, the Giants? It was an interesting time. It was a really interesting time. Like, let's, I'll, I'll do the first two years and you take the second two years because <laughs> I haven't been covering the team in 2022, 2023. And so I also want to hear your take on the way that this all went down because I just kind of gave mine at the end. But 2020, Gabe Kapler was, and people will not look at it this way, just because it was so hard to feel emotionally attached to a team in 2020 60 game season, but he really was, in my opinion, an excellent leader to get the Giants through a pandemic season. And what I mean by that is he really cares about people, the people that he works with, the people that he hired that year, a lot of them first time coaches at the major league level. He cared deeply about making sure that they had a positive experience and that they were able to connect with players in a season where there were all sorts of restrictions around what the Giants coaches could do, what they couldn't do, about how the players could travel, about how the team could travel. I think Gabe Kapler set the tone from a leadership perspective. And I think he did a really nice job for a team that you take the record away. I mean, they lost out on the playoffs on a tiebreaker. That team didn't have much talent. It was the first year removed from Buster Posey. The rotation wasn't very good. Logan Webb still had a five ERA back in 2020. <laughs> tells you, I mean, tells you how far off the Giants were. And Gabe Kapler did a really admirable job leading them through that season. And I think it helped set the tone for 2021 when Buster returns. And we've got coaches who players really believed in at that point in time. And you look at the season that happened. I mean, It took active management of the 2021 roster. A lot of people say, well, it was easy for Gabe. He had career years from Buster and Belt and Crawford and Gossman. Even if that's the case, that's not a 107-win team. Like, you can get career years from Buster Posey, Brandon Crawford, and Brandon Belt in the same season. That's typically a 92-win team. We've seen what that looks like in 2012 and 2014. Like That's not 107 wins. He got every single guy to buy into their role that year, and he was the manager of the year, unequivocally. Like I, I think that he earned that award. He earned the players' trust. He got buy-in from Brandon Belt, Brandon Crawford, and Buster Posey to believe in what the Giants were doing, to change their swings, to change their approach on the field. And that, to me, will be the best part of his legacy in San Francisco. Because 107 wins is a number that will be remembered until it's surpassed. And I don't think that number is being surpassed anytime in the next 50 years. <laughs> so we're going to talk about that for a while. Not in the same way we talked about 2010, 2012, and 2014. But to me, Gabe Kapler was the right person to lead the Giants in 2020 and 2021. And that's where I'll leave it to you. Because I don't know that he was the right person to lead after Buster Posey was gone. Because it was a clubhouse that was devoid of the type of accountability and the type of leadership that comes that only a player can provide. And the Giants didn't provide him. The Giants front office and ownership group didn't provide him with that central four central player. The thing I most want to say about 107 wins is how do you get to 107 wins? You get there by never 
having a day where your concentration slips from 90% to 80%, because those are the days that you end up giving away. It doesn't take much, right? To slide oh. down that. They won 107 games by basically never taking a day off intensity wise and concentration wise for the last two months of the season. Yeah. Which kind of makes it so shocking to see what they did this year. I mean, going into Colorado and losing three out of four and just really falling flat over and over again. But it's important to note that Gabe Kapler was the manager of both those teams, right? Exactly. The one that never lost their intensity and the one that just fell flat two years in a row. You know, one thing I want to say about Gabe that doesn't have anything to do with the Giants. There are things, you know, I'm a player development person. I'm a minor league person. There are things that have gotten better across the industry in player development that Gabe Kapler pioneered with the Dodgers. He was intensely caring about nutrition for Dodgers prospects long before when everybody else was handing out Chipotle, you know, gift certificates. <laughs> he cared about the engine, what you put into the engine. And that has filtered out to the industry because it, it you know, it showed out on the field, right? Those were things he did that made the game better. And I think he deserves uh, the congratulations of anybody who cares about baseball for those kind of things. I think that's what he's really good at. Yeah. Yes. Supporting people, his coaching staff really coached people up. I mean, you see the improvement that JD Davis made on defense this year. That's a place where coaching made a difference. There are so many things he did well. There were things he never did well. And I think they had to do with communication. Yes. I will totally say agree. very early in his manager, like a month or two weeks or something, I, I, I wrote a very mean-spirited tweet about Gabe Kapler, which I now feel bad about. But he said something and the beat guys reported it. And I read it and I said, how does anybody follow any of this gobbledygook? And I said, every time he speaks, he sounds like a Dilbert cartoon. And again, mean-spirited, but it's a little bit true that Gabe talks like corporate HR training seminars mm -hmm. a lot of the times. And I don't know how well that works in that position where communication down and up and out are so crucial to the job. And I think maybe that's where he didn't fit particularly well, but, you know, intellectually, uh, you know, caring about people. I think there's a lot of things he did really really well and it's sad that it ends this way you know, managers are hired to be fired as they say yeah. oh yeah it always ends this way and one thing that i'll add to that in getting to know gabe in the dugout for two seasons the way that he talked was that that wasn't an act like that is how he communicates and i think <laughs> that that's the hard part it's like he was being his authentic self and to so yeah. many people on the outside he seemed inauthentic he seemed not genuine and that's just who he was. And I will give him credit until the very end, even when things were going incredibly south and some people would have completely changed their identity, their communication strategy. They would have had alarms sounding. Gabe was true to himself to the very end. And he probably knows that that got him fired. He probably knows that that style did not resonate with an ownership group, with a fan base that wanted him to act and sound differently. And I think there's there's very much merit in the idea that you want your manager to connect a little bit more. It's why the first name I floated after he was fired was Stephen Vogt, 
because Stephen Vogt yeah. connects with fans in such a different way. He's the antithesis of a communicator that Gabe Kapler is. But I'll give him credit. Like the guy stuck to, to, to who he was. And I'm not so sure that if I was in the position where I was about to get fired as a beat reporter, or if I was about to get fired my current job, that I would just keep doing what I was doing and stay true to what you believe because that's your process. I'm very much of the belief that I might change and just to, you know, to try and hold on to a, a job. And Gabe thought, hey, this is, they're, they're either going to keep me or they're not, but they're not going to get a different version of me. And that probably hurt. Yeah. I, I will go back. So the, it, it, famously, the last time the Giants fired a manager, as opposed to let a guy go when his contract expired, was in 1985. Who can uh, forget that, Jim Davenport? Jim Davenport. <laughs> I, I just want to point out, Jim Davenport was a really important part of the Giants for decades after that in their player development organization as a coach at the minor league level. Um, so this this does not have to be the end for game. I'm sure there are many good things left for him in this in, in his baseball career. Um but here's, I know there's some people say, well, it's not justified, blah, blah, blah. He's a scapegoat. All managers are a scapegoat for losing seasons. Always. I think, I think you and I can agree that if Gabe Kapler is the only change, it, this isn't going to go well in the future. Yes. This has to be the first of many changes for the way Farhan Zaidi looks at the organization, for the way they operate. There have to be changes going forward from the lens through which he has seen the game. So what are kind of the key questions going forward for you? How much control is Farhan willing to cede to a new manager and potentially a new coaching staff? How much is Farhan willing to change his philosophy on the spectrum of player acquisition in the way that the Giants go about you know, thinking about a 40-man roster and a 26-man roster on a daily basis and ultimately a nine-man lineup and a five-man rotation on a daily basis. I think <laughs> those are really important things. And bottom line is, how much are they willing to acknowledge that they haven't connected with the fans, that they haven't built a team that resonates and reflects what San Francisco, the Bay Area, and the Giants fan base all around the world actually wants? Because... You can win 107 games in platoon, but I'll still note, even though it was a COVID season, even though there were still restrictions and people weren't comfortable going to the ballpark in September of that year, they didn't sell out the final game of the 107 win season. They came very close, or maybe they sold out <laughs> Sunday, but Friday and Saturday, they didn't sell out. And I think that there's something to do there with the way that you build a roster and the way that you think about this team and organization moving forward. And, you know, maybe that is just going all in, like they kind of said today on Marco Luciano. Marco Luciano is the guy. And I mean, by default of looking at the free agent shortstop market and who might be available <laughs> to trade, it's wise to say that Marco Luciano is going to be the guy. But I think it's how much are they philosophically willing to change from a roster building and player acquisition status those are two key ones for me. And then the other one is how much control is he willing to cede to a manager? Because he and Gabe thought about the game, talked about the game in such similar fashion that it's got to be different. And I think that if he's willing to bring someone in who pushes back on certain things, it can ultimately lead to friction that helps the Giants in the long run. What do you see as kind of the, the main sticking point of the offseason? 
yeah, I wouldn't, I don't know that I even call it control. I just, and that's something I've, I've said in various places for a couple of years. I think they could benefit from more voices in the conversation, more voices in the room that disagree. Yes. Uh, you know, I used to, in my non-baseball world, I was a, a director of public engagement. If you have everybody around the room agrees all the time, you are missing things. You have blind spots in your processes. Too much agreement is not good. It's good to have people who disagree every now and then. Um, and there are places in there in 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 the roster management we've seen over the last years where this comes up. They always prioritize swing decisions. Athleticism tends to get deprioritized. And the mm -hmm. end result of that has too much been a roster full of corner bats and no up the middle athleticism. And you go to Arizona, and you see what difference that makes uh, in, a, in, a, in a game that is now about speed and athleticism. They don't do it. And in part, in part, that's because of who's available. But part of it is that they see the world of baseball through a particular lens. And I think you just need a little expansion. Not a lot. It's not that swing decisions are bad, but you can't be only one thing. Like some variety, some diversity is important. I'm very happy to hear that Marco Luciano uh, is going to get that chance. Now let's hope he stays healthy. He'll be good, but that's not the end. They need more speed. They need more athleticism. They need more up the middle talent. I like building rosters from the middle out, not from the out in. Um, and I just think, yeah, expanding how they think about how to put together a successful roster and having someone in the room say, I disagree now. And again, that's going to help them going forward. So now I've got a question for you because I know that you know the Giants organization, the scouts, the different people who've come through in player development and, you know, the Sabian Evans front office well through the years. Would the Giants benefit at all from making John Barr's voice prominent again in the organization, making Bobby Evans, who is still around, as far as I know, in San Francisco and the Bay Area, from giving him some opportunity to give feedback into the player acquisition process. I know fans want to pin everything. They want to pin the downfall of the Giants' golden years on Bobby <laughs> Evans, but that's not how it worked. Is there anyone who the Giants have brought through the last 30 years who you think, hey, it would be nice to have that person's voice in the organization and having an influence? One of the first names I thought of was, you know, Brian Bridges was on the payroll, and now he's yeah. going to Kansas City as their director of amateur scouting, and he's someone who helped build the Atlanta Braves into what they are. I feel like that's going to be a big loss if they weren't prioritizing his voice. And I wonder if there are other people like that that you could see in the industry helping the Giants. You know, and I think losing Brian Bridges really is a shame. And I have no insight whatsoever into how that happened. Yeah, I do know that Brian Bridges was a person who philosophically had some different approaches to the draft um, from Farhan Zaidi. I know he did not particularly like models, which is what a lot of teams use now to do drafts. Um, and I don't know if that, that tension led to him leaving. If so, it's, it's, it's a shame because as I say, diverse voices are good. I always thought it was a real shame that they didn't use Brian Sabian while he was yeah. still a member of the organization and what, you know, interpersonal things matter in, in, in all this relation building matters. So how that broke down, I can't say, uh, John Barr actually is a pretty important person in the organization still. Um, he not only works on the draft, he actually works on the pro scouting side oh, uh, in, internally. Like he'll go to, I'll see him at the affiliates where he hands in uh, draft report or scouting reports on all the internal players. So his voice is still in the mix. Um, 
One person I haven't seen around for a while is JP Ricciardi, who was one of Farhan's first hires. I think he would be a really, he's a really valuable voice. I mean, this is a man who's done a lot of things in baseball, who knows a lot of baseball. So I hope they're utilizing him. Uh, That's guy, uh, somebody who pops into my mind is uh, like his voice should be part of this. Um, But I also think, and I've said this before, when Farhan was in LA, he was there. Andrew Friedman was there. Josh Burns was there. Stan Kasten was there for a little while. Um, um, uh, Anthopolis was there in between jobs, right? Like oh, that's not. something I'd kind of like to see them do. Like there are people out there. John Daniels is out there. Kind Bloom is out there right now. I don't even know if they'd be interested in this, but why not bring in more of these experienced voices just to be, they don't have to have the say, right? Yeah. Just, just to be bouncing ideas off of the more ideas, the better, I think at this point in time. Yeah. Hey, no one likes a cross-sport reference. They're always strained. They hardly work, but if you follow college football at all, Nick Saban does a really good job of rehabilitating former coaches within the Alabama system, making them offensive coordinators, analysts, bringing in people who were fired elsewhere, who were thought to be the next big thing in college football because of their vision. They come to Alabama, they spend a year or two at Alabama, they help the program, and then they go get another job. I'd like the Giants to be that stepping stone, that intermediate job for these people who lost jobs elsewhere. And that's not to say, go on and get everyone who gets fired. Bring in Billy Epler, uh, John Daniels, Bloom whatever. But one or two of these voices who have been in the industry and still have some wisdom to offer and were part of winning teams, I think that could be really useful for this organization. Bloom's an interesting one because there's a lot of parallels, Roger, with (laughs) his hire in Boston and his firing in Boston and where the organization is right now and where the Giants are right now relative to where Farhan started. Yeah, I, I've always been fascinated by that parallel, just maybe because they were the one and two when Farhan was hired. Um, the Red Sox and the Giants have had eerily similar paths since then. They had the one really good year. They've had some disappointing years. Uh, they have both carefully massaged the, the the payroll down, and that's clearly been something that came from ownership that, that hurt them. There's no parallel to the Mookie Betts trade, although the Mookie Betts trade certainly impacted the Giants' fate. <laughs> Um, they both were all in on Trevor story, which was a really interesting, like, this is the free agent we want to go big after, even though there were some real, or maybe because there were some real red flags that brought his price down. The tendency to bargain hunt in free agent has been similar. Um, after Bloom was, was, was fired, I was listening to a Jason Sark program about that. And he, he said, um, that people in the industry hated dealing with bloom for traits like he drove people batty in trade conversations because he viewed everything as a, a equity exchange and he would not get off a price point he had to get equal value and if he couldn't get equal value he wouldn't say yes to a deal and of course in the in the course of making deals sometimes you have to wiggle a little bit but he wouldn't do that and it is kind of notable that uh chris Bryan aside there haven't been a lot of big trades in the Farhan Zaidi era. I think that's something that we've noticed that the, the bold three-team trades that maybe yeah. you thought you were going to get have never appeared. There have been small trades that turned out really, really good, but big trades aren't there. Um, so I, I do think there's some interesting parallels between those two um, and both of them. I mean, the, the Boston situation, I think it's different because they seem to ax everybody every three years, no matter how they're doing, <laughs> uh, whereas the Giants have 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 valued continuity much more over the years. Um, 
but there is something in the linked fates of those two organizations and people, I think. Yeah, I I also look at the Cubs and Jed Hoyer and what they've tried to do in Chicago. I, I mentioned this on a recent episode, like the Red Sox, the Giants, and the Cubs all tried to rebuild on the fly without actually being bad, without yeah. actually trading away their outside of Mookie Betts, best players. And obviously that's a massive caveat because Mookie Betts is one of the best players in all of baseball. And it's just a joy to watch, but they cut payroll, but didn't slash payroll. They got right. down to what they could see as a palatable level for ownership. And so the team was still good enough, still had enough recognizable faces that you could fill much of the stadium, but not most of the stadium. And you know, you see what the Red Sox did this year. You see what the Cubs did this year. You see what the Giants did this year. And they all kind of tried to thread this needle between, hey, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to be a division leader. We think we can get into the postseason. And it worked out terribly for the Red Sox. It worked out terribly for the Giants. And we thought that the Cubs were going to get there. They bought at the deadline. Heimer Candelario was supposed to save them. And then the Cubs were just miserable down the stretch. So complete face plant. <sighs> you know, you know what's interesting about this is still they're tied together because the Red Sox and the Giants would actually be perfect trading partners in that the Red Sox have a decent amount of young position player talent yeah. and, and good prospects at the upper levels, but absolutely no pitching. There is no pitching on a major league roster and there is no pitching in that minor league system. The Giants system is really pitching heavy right now and it's light on position players. Like they are not going to fix their problem in their offense with their internal core right now. Mm -hmm. They've got to get people from elsewhere and uh, you you look at trade partners like that, and it's like, huh? Well, maybe you know, maybe uh, you know, Jared Duran or somebody like that. Um, you know, athletes on other teams that are young and controllable that you can find places to match up. Um, but I agree. You know, though it's funny the, the the team that really did that successfully was the Milwaukee Brewers. The Milwaukee yeah. Brewers never got bad. They never stripped everything down. They constantly competed. Um, because David Stearns is a really, really good executive, which maybe means we should be afraid of the Mets <laughs> in their future. It's it's interesting when you say the uh, the Red Sox as potential trade partners, because I've been starting to think about that for the offseason, and I'm sure we'll do an entire future episode about players and prospects on other teams who we could consider as Giants targets for the offseason. But I've, I've thought about the Cardinals, because they've got to rebuild on the fly. They're short on pitching. Yeah. Dylan Carlson's a Northern California guy. You know how much Farhan Zaidi likes to bring in Northern California guys into the organization. I think that that's another team that you pair them and you know, the Red Sox, and there are teams out there, even though the free agent market is relatively bleak, that the Giants could make moves with this offseason. So maybe we need to get Katie Wu in here on our next. Uh... <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, the the White Sox are an interesting team, although that's, a, that's another team that has all kinds of culture questions you hear about there, but they have a lot of young talent. Um, the Mariners are in kind of the same position as the Giants. They have a ton of pitching and they need bats. You don't have to beg um, Farhan to trade with the Mariners. You do not. He and Jerry know how to trade with each other. Uh, the Juan Soto story is going to kind of hover out there this year. There's a lot of interesting stuff that is going to happen this winter. Yeah. So, so uh, let me ask you this question. How much do you think the manager search 
what's going to happen later depends on getting a manager in place quickly who maybe players can relate to. Uh, uh, Farhan talked about that at the end of year thing today about a manager being a recruiter. Uh, is it they've got to make this decision and and nail it first in order for some of these other decisions to, to come through? I think you'd like to project some stability from the franchise and you'd like to have a, a charismatic forward facing figure. It's got to be, in my opinion, someone who's not that far removed from their playing days. And so, you know, a lot of people have been touting Ron Wotus. I think that he's part of player development. You know, he has done a really good job helping guys when they get to the major league level, get better at the major league level. You look at Brandon Crawford, Joe Panic, Brandon Belt. Ron Wotus was instrumental in all of their development. Pablo Sandoval as well. He's the one exception I may, might make for someone who is pretty far removed from playing days and playing the game, but there's a lot of young people out there and maybe Mark DeRosa is on the higher end. I think he's closing in on 50 now that I think could really energize the fan base, really energize the people internally and really energize potential external additions who want to come play in San Francisco. So I do think that it's part of it but I don't know that it's the entire equation that the Giants should be looking at right now. I, I'm curious to hear, where do you think this manager search leads them? And not to a particular candidate, but to the profile and the traits, the characteristics of what the Giants will probably end up looking at and prioritizing here. It is really interesting because, you know, there's a lot of the chatter on um on Bo Mel, <laughs> Bob <laughs> Melvin, who makes a lot of sense, former giant, a lot of ties to Zaidi. Um, and then you've got guys like Stephen Vogt and, and the Mark Hallberg, uh, his candidacy is kind of interesting too, because of his connection to Buster and everyone you ever talk to who talks about him is so impressed by his mind uh, and his, uh, the way he thinks about things. I have a soft spot for Wotus because, you know, he's out there on the backfields working with kids. Yeah. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking with, with Dennis Pelfrey in, in Richmond and his phone rings. And I look down and it's, whoa, I mean, he is involved in, in player development. Um, and, and I just think he's a good baseball person. I tend to think that you're right. That somebody young, that like a Steven boat, that somebody like that who can connect with people, who's a young, fresh voice will end up, being the way it goes, although the Zaidi's contract situation makes it complicated, but yeah. I, I suspect it ends up a kind of young, a person who is on the younger side of thinking about baseball. Yeah. And we touched on this before, but it's worth saying again, while recruiting and having a face who connects with fans and external players is important, the bottom line is the future of the Giants organization depends on how good this crop of kids coming up through the farm right now is going to be and that's kyle harrison marco luciano uh you could throw tyler fitzgerald patrick bailey uh luis matos carson wisenhunt mason black the list goes on and on of players who the giants are going to depend on to get them out of this rut they've been in i think for most of the last decade save for 2021 and so that's why i think that you know while external validation and people who believe in the face of your franchise is important it's ultimately going to be someone who can really help develop players at the major league level, someone who instills confidence in players at the major league level, and someone who's been in those shoes not all that long ago, who is going to be the best at that in terms of, hey, I know what it's like to come up. Much like Gabe Kapler, he knew exactly what it was like to platoon. He right. could talk to Austin Slater because he had Austin Slater's job. It's got to be someone who was an up-and-coming prospect 
who can relate to these kids and help them develop at the major league level, because that is going to be what separates the Giants moving forward. Yeah. And so that's something when you ask me what changes I think need to be made. One thing that I think they need to let the young kids have some play because they've got to have time to fail, right? That's an important part of learning how to be a major leaguer. I've said this organization has been really, really, really good at managing the trees. They focus on every advantage they can find for the game they're playing today, but they have not been so good at managing the forest, which is thinking about how do I get Louis Matos to be an above average starter or Kyle Harrison to be an above average starter. I thought when they demoted Kyle Harrison, although it made sense for the games they were playing that week, it maybe did not send a great message about the long run. And I think they need to be a little more focused on the long run going forward because young players are not going to be able to play with confidence and grow the way they need if they're worried about getting replaced their next at bat if they fail. So that maybe is my my big takeaway for something I want to see happen in the next year. More more managing the forest and a little less managing the trees. Yeah, we've got our episode name now. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Seeing the forest through the trees, the future of Giants baseball through the eyes of Roger Munter. And uh, I'll be mentioning the bibliography there. <laughs> all right carrie is there anything else you uh, anything else you have to say i think that's good but i i can't wait for the next one because this was a whole lot of fun and by the the next time we record the giants could have candidates they're interviewing and there could be a whole slew of topics to touch on with regard to the future of the organization so it'll be fun i can't wait to get to it